0: All right, well, good morning, everyone. If I haven't had the chance to meet you, my name is Matthew. I would love to, just get a chance to meet you and talk to you and welcome you to Redemption Parker and, yeah, try and get to know you a little better and hear your story a little bit. Um, So, yeah, as you can tell from what Stuart just read for us in Acts chapter 3, we are continuing our study of the book of Acts. Just to give you a bit of a recap to catch you up, what's happened so far in the book of Acts is that... Jesus has ascended into heaven, and before he went, he gave his disciples a mission. They said, I am going to send you out, starting here in Jerusalem, and then you're going to go to Judea and Samaria, and then you are going to carry the gospel to the ends of the earth. But before I send you out on that mission, you have to wait for the power. You have to wait for the Holy Spirit. And so we saw the the coming of the promised Holy Spirit last week in Acts chapter 2 at Pentecost. We we saw that there was this this mighty rushing wind coming and indwelling and filling the believers. And the church grew from about 120 people to 3,000 people. So on the day that the church was born, we actually had our first megachurch. And chapter 2 ended with the church... The disciples devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayers, and awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. So, so, that's how Acts chapter two ends. And as we move into Acts chapter three, we get to see just one of the many signs that were being done that were that were bringing awe and wonder to the people of Jerusalem. And and because there were were many signs, I think the reason that Luke, the author of Acts, shows this one particular sign was because of its publicity, that this was a very public event. There was going to be a huge response to this event. We know if if you keep reading in Acts chapter 4, verse 4, you would read that the church grew from the 3,000 to 5,000 men. So at the end of chapter two, there were three thousand people, and by the end of chapter three, there were five thousand men. So including women and believing children, you know, there were maybe seven or eight thousand people. And so this 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 story starts out with Peter and John are going up to the temple for prayer, and, and there was a man there. He, he was a beggar. He, he was just accustomed for asking, you know, for for food or. Clothes or, or a little bit of money, just, just trying to get by. And, and the interaction begins when this beggar sees Peter and John. And so he launches into his spiel. He said, I'm, I'm tired, I'm hungry, you know, anything helps. God bless. And, and because this beggar was laid at the gate daily, that, that means that everybody would have recognized him. Everybody passed this beggar every day when they were going up to the temple for prayer. So I I wonder if it almost became, you know, part of Peter and John's liturgy. You know, it became like the start of their worship service. Like they had been classically conditioned. When they hear this beggar calling out, they're like, thing, it's time to worship the Lord. He had just become background noise to them. But something was different. This day Something in Peter and John Changed in them so that this beggar Could no longer just be More background noise for them Maybe it was you know, the empowering Holy Spirit Maybe it was the gospel taking Further root in their hearts Something happened where they could no longer Just ignore this beggar And we read that in verse 4 Peter directed his gaze At the beggar as did John And they said Look at us. Something interesting about eye contact, isn't there? It's vulnerable, it's intimate, it's, it's very, very human. You almost get you know too uncomfortable if somebody looks you in the eyes too long. It's one of those, you know, the eyes are the window into the soul kind of thing. And so Peter and John took an, what can already be an uncomfortable thing, you know, making eye contact, and they did it with, you know, a very uncomfortable person. You know, what, what do all of us do when we see a homeless person lying there on the street? You know, oh, I'm so fascinated by this other side of the street now. You know, it's, it's just our, our natural tendency of, oh, this is going to be uncomfortable. I absolutely have to look away. I, I can't look this person in the eye. Proverbs twenty eight twenty seven says that whoever gives to the poor will not want, but he who hides his eyes will get many a curse. And so I think just in the action that we see Peter and John doing when they say, Look at me, I think there's a gospel command for us there. A gospel command to see everyone as human. You know, it's just like we talked about in Jonah. You know, even in Jonah with the people that you hate, they're still human and deserving of your respect. Well, even with the beggar on the street, the person who's uncomfortable, who you know is going to ask you for money. The the least you can do is have a gospel moment and humanize them by honoring them enough to make eye contact and and stop pretending that they're just another nuisance part of your day, that they're just background noise. So Peter and John had this gospel moment of humanizing the beggar, and, and they they looked at him. And, and so the beggar looked back, and you know, he was probably expecting the things that he had gotten all of his life: a couple of coins, maybe a, a coat or, or a sandwich. But, but then Peter offered him something so much more valuable than anything that he had ever been given before. Peter said. I have no silver and gold, but what I do have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. Which, as an aside, never believe that God can't use you in his kingdom. You know, you know so often we think, you know, it's going to be the rich people, but, you know, because they have access to all these resources, they're going to make the difference. Or it's going to be the smart people that have all this knowledge they know so much. They're going to be the ones that change the world. Or it's going to be the influential people, you know, because of their connections. Peter didn't have any of that. He was just a poor common boy from Galilee. There was really nothing at all impressive about him. But what he did have was the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he was being empowered by the Holy Spirit. That's what changes the world. That is how the kingdom of God grows, is through God using very ordinary people, wholly reliant on him to do very extraordinary things. And so Jesus, through Peter and John, healed the beggar's feet. Started with the feet, moved to the ankles, and then he stood up, and then he walked, and then he walked a little faster, and then he was leaping for joy. He was running around the temple, leaping for joy, jumping up and down, and absolutely causing a scene. He was, he was doing what none of us do at church. That's a topic for a different day. But verse 10, and the people were filled with the wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. And seeing all of that wonder, seeing that awe and that amazement, Peter saw a gospel opportunity. He wanted to capitalize on the attraction that had just happened. People were asking questions. People were interested. People thought, that's the beggar, right? I've seen him a thousand times. There's there's no way this can be him walking and jumping and leaping and causing a ruckus. Jesus had taught the disciples, Always be on mission. Always be wearing your your gospel lenses. Always be looking for an opportunity. And so if you were with us a few months ago, or or last year actually, as we studied the book of John, seven times in the book of John, Jesus performed what was called a sign. A sign or a miracle. You know, it would be the turning the water into wine, or the feeding of the 5,000, or the raising of Lazarus from the dead. And he would do these signs in order to make his authority and his power go public. He would use this sign to draw in a crowd, to attract the people, to pique their curiosity, and then use that as a springboard to share the gospel. He would say, here's the sign, and I am what the sign is pointing to. Well, the the exact same thing thing is happening here in Acts chapter 3. We have a sign, the healing of the man. It gathers a crowd. It garners some interest. And then Peter's going to capitalize on this and show what it's pointing to. We're going to move from sign to sermon. And Peter, he begins his sermon by correcting a misunderstanding that the people had. Verse 12, he said, men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk? As a church that wants to emphasize and highlight and major on gospel culture, this is another great picture of gospel growth and grace in Peter. Just a few months ago, he had been one of the disciples arguing with each other about who would be the greatest in the kingdom, who's going to have the biggest throne. Who's going to have the most authority? Who is going to be the closest to Jesus? They were fighting with one another. They were arguing with one another. In our, in our gospel community this, this past week, we were studying James, and something that James talks about a lot is selfish ambition and, and conceit, that, that just human and sinful and earthly pressure to push other people down so that you can raise yourself up and to be seen as somebody. And this would have been a great moment for Peter to start his own movement. He could have started Peterism or or Peteranity. You know, people thought that he was the one who had healed this man. But because Peter knew where his identity was, it wasn't in trying to find recognition and success and value from the world because his identity was in Jesus Peter had no problem turning the spotlight away from himself, saying, this this wasn't my power. This wasn't my piety. This is the power of God. It's like we said a few weeks ago, the acts of the apostles, these are Jesus' works, continued. This is really the acts of Jesus Christ through the apostles, by the Holy Spirit. And so Peter gets the sermon started out on the right foot. He directs the attention away from himself and he says, this is about God. And then he uses that and he really gets into the meat of this sermon. And, And as you can tell when Stu read for us, this is a dense sermon. There is history, there is theology, there's condemnation, there's exhortation, there's reinterpretation of you know peter speaking to these jews trying to correct some things that they had wrongly believed and so because it's so dense you know we could be here for three days we could write an entire old testament theology textbook just from this sermon but we're going to simplify it down and see two main points two overarching points that peter is building on throughout this sermon And the two things that he highlights, number one, are the privilege of the people, the people that he's talking to, the Jews. And the second thing is the sufficiency of the Savior. So number one, Peter is talking about the privilege of the people. And and more specifically, he's talking about the sin of not capitalizing or utilizing the privilege and the opportunity that these Jews had to see and recognize and put their faith in Jesus. In verse 17, he says, I know, brothers, that you acted in ignorance, as did your leaders. He says, brothers, you acted in ignorance toward Jesus. You did not recognize him. You took him for granted. Which got me thinking, okay, well, how did these Jews, these ones specifically, how, how did they practice their ignorance? How, how is that different from, from anybody else who doesn't believe? Well, obviously, this, this healing in this sermon comes after Pentecost. And so Pentecost was a national holiday. People from all over Israel would come, and they would worship, and then they would go back home. And so the people that Peter is now speaking to Because he's in Jerusalem, and because everybody has gone home, all the tourists and the travelers are gone, the people that Peter is speaking to, they are Jewish natives. You know, we we get the pride of being a native, right? I don't, but, you know, if if you're not from Colorado, people will, will let you know, and there are, you know, transplants, and then there are California transplants, and you don't want to be one of those. So these are Jerusalem natives. They, they work here, they live here, they worship here, they spend all of their lives here in Jerusalem. And at this point, because they live here, there is absolutely no way that they do not know who Jesus is at this point. Just a few weeks ago, at the triumphal entry, Jesus had come riding into the city of Jerusalem on a donkey. And it wasn't just a few people that greeted him. It, it, it was crowds. They were shouting his name. Hosanna, Hosanna, glory to God in the highest. And they were laying down their cloaks so that he could ride in on the cloaks. So a crowd welcomed him into Jerusalem. Or I think, you know, maybe in the last few weeks, you know, some one of these Jews was out working in their yard and they saw a guy walk by. And they looked at their neighbor and said, it, it, Isn't that Barabbas? He's a murderer. I I thought we locked him up. And then the neighbor'd be like, "Yeah, we did lock him up." But remember that guy Jesus? Uh, You know, Pilate said, "You can have one or the other," and we decided that we wanted the murderer, and we sent Jesus off to his death. Said, "Oh, oh, yeah, Jesus. That's right. Um, He he died a few weeks ago, and that was when we had that solar eclipse." And when there were earthquakes and the earth was being ripped apart everywhere, right? They're, oh, yeah, yeah, that was Jesus. And then, you know, last week when everybody was here, the entire city heard this rushing sound like a mighty wind. And a lot of those Jesus people got really, really excited. There were 3,000 people absolutely going nuts. So Jesus had done a really good job of making himself absolutely Unignorable in the city of Jerusalem. And Peter is calling them to account. He is saying, you have had plenty of opportunity to see and to recognize and to put your faith in Jesus, but you have acted in ignorance. And he says, partly that is because of your leaders. Partly that's the the Pharisees and the Sadducees' fault. You know, these men who claim to be experts in the scriptures, that when the fulfillment of those scriptures is standing right in front of them, they, they can't recognize them. So yes, your leaders are going to share the, the, the lion's share of the blame. But, but you are still responsible. Notice, Peter says you're ignorant, but that ignorance doesn't get them off the hook. That's not a pass. What does Peter tell them to do in verse 19? He says, you were ignorant, now repent. So Peter is criticizing these Jews and calling them to account for the privilege and the frequent opportunity that they had to recognize Jesus. And I think there's something for us in that. How how privileged are we to have so frequent and so many clear opportunities to see who Jesus is? I didn't know Ryan was coming up here, but I'm really glad that he did to tell us about Secret Church and the Persecuted Church, because that's a really helpful reminder that most of the church does not enjoy the privileges and the luxuries that we do. We live in a country where I have never once walked into the pay Center and wondered if the government was going to come barging in these doors to take us all off to jail for singing the names of Jesus, the name of Jesus. I, as much as I loathe the word church shopping, the very fact that it is a part of our vocabulary shows how privileged we are. Wait, wait. Church membership and attendance can be a multiple-choice option, like you can go here or here or here and pick based on your own personal preference of this person, you know, preaches too long or this person sings too loud. Like That, that just shows how rich we have it. And the fact that we can come together in every single week that we can sing the gospel and hear the gospel and taste the gospel and speak the gospel to one another in our community groups and... and and that's not because there's anything special about Aaron or me or our gospel community leaders or the bread. Like we, we get that at Publix, King Supers here. I don't know, but the sorry, you don't have Publix. Um, but the, the, the point is, with the opportunities to see and to respond to the gospel, with that opportunity comes a responsibility. Jesus said some really alarming words in Matthew 11. He was denouncing the cities where he had done most of his work. And the reason that he was denouncing them is because even though he had done most of his work in them, they did not repent. And so in Matthew 11, he says, Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. You will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, you would have it would have remained until this day, but I'd say it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. So this weekend, a couple of the women from our church went to a conference in Boulder and one of the speakers there, Jackie Hill Perry, uh, my wife follows her on Instagram and she posts these really thoughtful, but kind of funny videos on Instagram. And whenever she's doing one of these, she'll start this post by saying, what up saints, and my beloved ain'ts, meaning Christians and and non-Christians. And so this is something we, we always want to be aware of, that I'm speaking both to the saints and to the ain'ts in the room. Do not waste the gospel opportunity that you have to respond to Jesus. I was just praying over and over and over this morning the words of, of Hebrews chapter three: "Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart." Last week, Mark touched on this, but he said that whenever a heart and a soul is presented with the gospel, it never stays the same. It is either going to soften or it's going to harden. When a heart is presented with the gospel, it is either going to soften and grow in love and understanding and recognition and faith in Jesus, or it is going to harden and say no and double down on its own sin and ignorance and unbelief. We actually get to see a a picture of what a hardening heart doubling down on itself looks like in this passage. Notice the progression of sin that, that Peter points out in these Jews. Let's look at verse 13. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate. So they saw Jesus and they said, we don't want you. Go to Pilate. And then it gets worse in verse 14. Started with delivering him over, but you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. So you delivered him over to Pilate. Pilate tried to give him back, and you said, No, 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 no. We don't want Jesus. We want the murderer. Give him to us. Sinful heart keeps doubling down, doubling down on its sin. And then we see it reach a climax in verse 15. They've delivered, they've denied, and then you killed the author of life. Start small, you take them. Okay, now we'll take the sinner, we'll take the murderer, and now we're gonna become the murderers, and we are going to kill Jesus. So Peter's sermon has been pretty gloomy so far. It's just been hammering down on the sin of these people. But but there's a little twist at the very end of Peter's sermon that, that could change how we view the words that Peter is saying and how we should feel about him just narrowing in on our sin so much. In verse 26, Peter says, God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. So again, he kind of reiterates the privilege that they had that God sent Jesus to you first, and this was to bless you by turning you away from your wickedness. Which, and if I were gonna rank some of the best backhanded compliments I've ever heard, that's one of them. This is all to bless you. This is gonna be a blessing. And why is it gonna be a blessing? Because I'm gonna tell you that you are wicked and sinful and evil and filled with unbelief and, and you might be thinking how, how is it a blessing for somebody to tell me that I am wicked and evil and sinful it's a, blessed, it's a blessing in the same way that it is a blessing for a doctor to tell you the bad news they could say no there's, there's no tumor Scans came back clean, everything's fine, just go living about, about your life, everything's fine, don't worry about it. Or they could love you enough, and they could bless you enough to say, nah, you're gonna need to come back in. The, the same is true spiritually, that it is a blessing to be told that you are not in a good standing before God. You and God are not Okay. You don't need a little more moralism in your life. You don't need to just try harder, do a few more good things, tell you know, some less lies. Don't just you know, try and be a little bit of a better person. The blessing is to be told that you are dead, that you are separated from God, and that you are in desperate need of a Savior. It, it might sting at first, but you cannot know the good news of the gospel until you know the bad news of your sin. You have to go through the depths of your own sin and depravity before you can experience the heights of God's love and grace. And and nowhere is that sin more evident than in verse 15. Again, Peter says, you killed him. Which is interesting because if you think about it, the Romans killed him. The Romans are the ones that actually beat him and scourged him and you know drove the nails down through his hands and feet. But when Peter looks at the unbelief and the ignorance and the sin of the Jews in rejecting Jesus, he says, You killed him. And so if you're thinking, okay, I I get it, I don't want to waste this gospel opportunity. I want to respond to Jesus. I don't want to let this this moment go by. I feel my heart softening towards the gospel, but you're wondering, where do I start? The gospel starts when you can read verse 15 and realize that it is talking about you. You killed Jesus. You rejected him. You lived in your unbelief. It's like the old hymn says, it was my sin that held him there. The gospel starts when you admit I have nothing to bring to the table. The only thing that I contribute to my salvation is the sin that made it necessary. And I am 100% totally completely dependent on the grace of God to save me and I killed him. I am guilty. So, So that's Peter's first point. He is calling us to account for the privilege of knowing and understanding the gospel that we have. And in verse 19, he calls us, Repent, therefore, and turn back that your sins may be blotted out. To repent, it's a word that we hear all the time. It just means to to turn around, to change your mind, to change your course of action, change your, your thinking, change your living, change your believing. So you have to say no to this and then say yes to something better. And the something better is the main second point that Peter wants to draw out. And the something better is the sufficiency of the Savior. Throughout his sermon, Peter uses several titles or descriptors or attributes of Jesus. And what these attributes and titles and descriptors do is they add some depth. And they add weight. And they add sufficiency to how we view the sacrifice that Jesus made on the cross. And as I look through this, I see... Five things that Peter pointed out about Jesus that he wants us to see. In verse 13, I see that Jesus is the glorified servant. In verse 14, I see that he is the holy and righteous one. In verse 15, I see that he is the author of life. So we down to verse 22. He is the promised prophet of Moses. And in verse 23, he is the promised offspring to Abraham. And so when I read those titles, those descriptors, the, the Bible neurons in my brain are exploding. I, I am seeing the, the connections of Jesus with the Old Testament. I am seeing him fulfilling thousands of years of Old Testament promises. I'm seeing him bring together all of these, these biblical themes. Like I, my, my mind is just a, a fireworks show. When I look at these things and and I want all of us to see those and I want all of of us to feel the joy and to feel the sufficiency that we have in Jesus. So so we're going to dig into each of these things to, to see how they add depth and meaning and purpose to the work that Christ did on the cross. And then as you go throughout your week. Pray these titles back to Jesus. Pray to him as the author of life, as the the promised offspring to Abraham, and just see what happens to your prayer life. See what happens to your affections as you know more of who Jesus is and what he has done. So Jesus is the offspring to Abraham. All the way back in Genesis 12, God made a promise to Abraham that through one of his offspring, all of the families and the nations of the earth would be blessed. Imagine keeping a promise that you made 4,000 years ago. And for centuries, people have been asking and questioning, God, where is this promised offspring? Where is this Messiah? I'm looking around, it's really dark out there. We are in desperate need of help. So so when you think of 4,000 years ago, God made a promise and that all of human history Every nation and every person on earth was going to be blessed by this one seed. When you pray this week, you can know that you are praying to a God who is faithful. The the earth and the grass and everything that you see will pass away, but God's word will not. And so when you pray, you can pray knowing that he hears you and that nothing that he promises to you will ever fall through. Jesus is the promised prophet of Moses. So, so in Deuteronomy 18, Moses is coming to the end of his life in ministry. He's led Israel out of captivity in Egypt. He has led them through the parted Red Sea. He has led them in the wandering in the wilderness. And he has now brought them to the edge of the promised land. And he's saying, folks, my time's about up. I don't have much time left. And, and in my time, I've, I've served as a prophet to you. I have spoken God's word to you. I have served as a mediator. I have served as someone who stands between you and God. I am your representative to God, and I am God's representative to you. But what I am telling you is that there is going to be someone who is like me, but so much better. He is going to be God's final word to you, There will be no revelation of God's character necessary. No more revelation necessary because Jesus is it. And he is going to be your mediator. And so not only did Jesus represent us as the mediator, but he became like us. God became man in the incarnation. He has stood between us and God. And so when you pray this week... You can pray in confidence that you have a mediator, one who can actually give you an audience before the holy and righteous God that you should stand condemned in front of. Jesus is the glorified servant. In Isaiah 52 and 53, it starts out saying, Behold, my servant shall act wisely, he shall be high and lifted up, and he shall be exalted. So it sounds like, you know, there's this king who is being crowned and he's being surrounded by all these people praising him. He's going to be high and lifted up. But as you keep reading, the tone shifts. His appearance will be so marred beyond human recognition that he is going to be despised and rejected by men. He is a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, That like a lamb going to the slaughter, he is going to be pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. And by his wounds, we will be healed. And so pray in the name of the one who took your place. Pray knowing that the beating and the lashing, that that was just the least of it that the real punishment was the eternal wrath of God being placed on the shoulders of Jesus and that you deserved that. You killed Jesus, so you deserved that punishment. And so when you pray in Jesus' name, know what kind of king you're praying to. He's not a king who's just high and lofty and far away from his people, but he trades places with us. He takes the punishment that we deserved on himself. Jesus is the holy and righteous one. Again, he traded places and took our unholiness and our unrighteousness on himself. And for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. So pray with gratitude. Jesus is the author of life. And just see the paradox. The author of life was killed by the creatures that he created. Again, he traded places with us, but because he is the author of life, he writes the story and he lays his life down by his own accord and he chooses when to raise it back up again. So when you pray, know that you are praying to a God who is powerful. Death has no hold over him. He is the creator and the author of life. He does what he wants. That is your God. So, so when we look to the cross... See the depth and the sufficiency of who Jesus was. See his beauty and power and glory. And to my saints and saints, turn to him. If you've never done that, today if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. Look to Jesus in faith. Repent of your sin. Admit that you are in desperate need of God's grace and forgiveness, and it is offered freely to you through the blood of Jesus. Or if it's for the 10,000th time, you catch some of the refreshing language that came up in this sermon, brothers and sisters, there is joy, and there is freedom, and there is hope in trusting in Jesus. So let's turn to him today. Let me pray for us. God, you are so much bigger and greater and stronger and wiser. God, the English language falls terribly short of describing who you are. And so we worship you as God and we praise you and we thank you for coming to us in Jesus and for Taking our place and for giving us such a secure and confident hope. Father, by your spirit, I ask that you would work in people's hearts right now. For people who have never turned to you, or maybe it's just been a really long time, Lord, would you soften their hearts? Would you show them the love and the grace and the beauty of Jesus? Would you call people to yourself right now? We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.